This is the Chronicles Podcast, a production of Chronicles Magazine, the original outlet for paleoconservative thought and a bastion of the authentic right in America. Well, welcome everybody to another episode of Chronicles Magazine podcast. My name is CJ Engel, and today I'm joined by Ryan Walters. We're going to be talking about his new book, The Jazz Age President, which is about Warren Harding. And he also has an article in Chronicles Magazine from last month. It's part of the Chronicles' uh, Remembering the Right series. And he basically summarizes some of the lessons that can be learned about Warren Harding. So, Ryan, thanks for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. It's, it's great to be here. All right, let's let's set the stage a little bit. You have uh, a book about Warren Harding, and as you talk about in the introduction to the book, and as you mentioned in the article itself, uh, he's not the most popular president among the intellectuals, and he's actually rated at the very bottom in most listings. So tell us a little bit about what made you want to study Warren Harding in light of uh, basically the fact that nobody likes him. You're right. If you look at... Presidential rankings going back to the very first one in 1948 with Arthur Schlesinger uh, Sr. He's appeared appeared last place in more polls than any other president. Now, and and just in the last recent polls, he's come up a little bit, but he's still in the bottom 10. The bottom 10 is considered a failure. Uh, So he's considered a failed president, the worst president or the worst group of presidents. And I just didn't think that that was fair. And it wasn't because I was some kind of a Harding scholar. I would just pick up little tidbits every now and then. I read a, a column or two by Pat Buchanan, who mentioned some things. And uh, just uh, I read a biography of Coolidge. And I got to looking at things. And I thought, there's got to be more here to this. And, of course, you know these rankings. <clears throat> who's doing those rankings are people that are uh, liberal, progressive uh, type people. Uh, most of them are, uh, are dominated by those. There's very few conservative, libertarian, Jeffersonian uh, scholars who are doing the rankings. Um, so I just started digging into Harding more deeply, looking at his letters and speeches, looking at primary sources, looking at his real record. And what you find is it's far different than what these people say. Most of these people, they just have their talking points and they just reiterate them. Well, he was dumb and he was a drunk and he was he drank and played poker in the White House and gambled and he, uh, you know, he had affairs and he didn't know what was going on and, and that kind of thing. And I thought that's got to be I just don't believe that. And of course, when you dig into it, you find out that that's true. That, that, that's not true. Right. So you, you your prior book uh, and I don't know if you have any between these, but your prior you had a prior book on Grover Cleveland. Um, did any of your interest in Harding come out of your research on that book? And I mean, Grover Cleveland is seen as someone who's basically a hero of the limited government, constitutionalist type people. Um, so I guess, you know, are, are these two related in your mind? And what are some of the you know differences and similarities between the two of them? Definitely, definitely. Cleveland's usually in the rankings. He's about middle of the pack. Um, he's, a, he's a hero for people who are, again, are Jeffersonians, who are, I believe, in limited government. And in fact, I think he was Ron Paul's favorite president. When Ron Paul served in Congress, he had a portrait of Grover Cleveland in his office mm-hmm. in Washington, D.C. Um, so, you know, again, most of these scholars don't view that. Both of these scholars are, are liberals and progressives, and they believe government's the best solution to problems. So, Presidents like Cleveland and Harding, who did not believe that and believed in laissez-faire and, and limited government and, 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 and deregulation and staying out of it, 
Um, that's why they're ranked so low. So yeah, I, I, I actually, interestingly, I, I wrote uh, the, the sketch for the Harding book. I actually did the how I wanted to do it while I was still in grad school as I was looking into these things and got interested in Cleveland about the same time and for about the same reasons. Again, started mm-hmm. picking up tidbits and and saying, you know, this this is not right either the way this guy's being ranked. So as you know, if you're a Jeffersonian, you're, you believe in uh, conservatism, true conservatism, paleoconservatism, uh, libertarianism, um, our presidents get beat up routinely in mm-hmm. academia. So it's really our job uh, to, to try to restore them to, to, to their rightful place um, in history. And that's what I tried to do with both of these guys. Do you think Harding is, a, is a looked at um, more stringently than Cleveland or more judged more harshly because of uh, his peculiar context? He came after Wilson. He kind of came after the birth of this uh, the progressive machine, especially with the Wilsonian administration. Do you think his opposition to that um, state of affairs causes people to think of him more harshly? No doubt about it. No doubt about it. Progressivism had really taken a big hold of the government, really not just with Wilson, go back to uh, Theodore Roosevelt and everything mm-hmm. that had happened for the pr- previous 20 years. Harding was elected in 1920. That previous 20 years or so was uh, the progressive era. Mm-hmm. And of course, Wilson really took it out of the stratosphere with the things that he did in, in World War One. And a lot of historians say, the progressive era ended with World War One. It did not. Mm-hmm. World War One was a progressive war. I mean, that was that was progressivism uh, overseas, mm-hmm. uh, imperialism, that kind of thing. And Harding comes in with his campaign slogan, "Return to Normalcy." <clears throat> Again, people had had it with all that kind of. They'd had it with progressivism and, and internationalism, and Harding comes in to reverse that. Um, much like Trump, look at what Trump did. Trump came in after Obama and, and a lot of progressivism and and. Weren't on the same slogan, America first, and uh, Trump got destroyed. Guess what happened to uh, Warren Harding? Of course, he died in the middle of his term, but uh, his successor, Coolidge, was exactly like him. Look at what history did to them. Mm-hmm. Um, that These progressives, these establishment people in the government, they don't like America first, uh, non-interventionist foreign policy, uh, conservative you know, fiscal policies and things like that. So uh, they fight hard against it and they wanted to keep progressivism going and, and Harding and Coolidge were in the way. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about Harding's cultural backdrop. He comes from Ohio, which is a different cultural world than you know where the progressives were kind of focused on the Northeastern elite. But um, Harding doesn't come out of that. And I think there's a little bit of a cultural clash there, which also made him more popular after the turmoil of the of the First World War. Yeah, he comes from a little town in Ohio. I mean, he's a, he's a small town guy. I wrote about that in a book, Small Town Values. I mean, he wasn't from uh, New York City or, or someplace like that. He didn't come out. I mean, he didn't go to Harvard or Columbia or Princeton, you know, like some of these other guys did. I mean, he <clears throat> I mean, he was just a he was a regular guy. He was like anybody else out here, a John Q. citizen out here on the street. And that's the way he portrayed himself. And he, mm-hmm. you know, he took pride in that. So he brought sort of small town values, but a big, a big one of those is common sense. You know, people ask me all the time, well, where did he get his viewpoints from? A lot of it's just being is common sense. I mean, um, com- a very commonsensical view of government. And when you read his speeches, a lot of, a lot of the, the of those Northeastern elites, you know, thought he was, and some of his speeches are a little hard to understand sometimes, but, when you when you look at what he's really saying in his letters and speeches, it's very commonsensical the way he approached things mm-hmm. and the way he did things. Coolidge was the sa- exact same way. So these guys are really two peas in a pod as far as policy is concerned. And so, and again, a lot of it small town 
uh, you know, middle America, middle class values. Where did he come from vocationally? He was a senator before he was president. Um, so talk. what was his life like before politics? Well, he started out as, a, you know, he wanted to be a, a you know journalism. He bought a newspaper when he was a young man, the Marion Star, which is still in existence. He actually sold it while he was president. Mm-hmm. But he and some friends uh, went together and bought it for a few hundred dollars in the 1880s. And he eventually bought them out and it was his newspaper. And he turned it into a really uh, a strong newspaper and a money making enterprise. Of course, his wife was was instrumental in that. She was very she had a very good uh, business acumen and understood it. And it, it became a, it became uh, quite lucrative for him. Mm-hmm. And so he was a journalist when he got into and a newspaper owner. When he got into politics, he was uh, serving the state Senate. He served a term as Lieutenant governor of Ohio, lost a bid for the governorship. And then he became a, was elected to the U S Senate in 1914. So he had served one full term in the Senate. That term was coming to an end when he was nominated for president in 1920. Mm-hmm. Did he have his eyes set on president on the presidency for a while, or or did that just kind of come organically? No, he he was he was not a guy who was ambitious to be president. Um, that kind of came up because um, you had a deadlock convention in 1920, and people had mentioned him for a higher office when he was in the Senate. But he, you see, a lot of his letters, he wasn't really interested in doing that. He knew what that would entail. His wife didn't want him to do it because she said she didn't think his health was good enough. She said, I just don't think he'd survive a term. And as a matter of fact, he didn't Mm -hmm. had hearts and things like that. Um, But of course, the convention was deadlocked and they were going nowhere. There was no way they needed a a sort of an alternative candidate. And he met with some people at the convention in a hotel room. Of course, this is the infamous smoke filled room where they say that this group of senators uh, picked Harding. because he was pliable and he would do what they want, which I, I dispute all of that mm-hmm. in the book. But they asked him, you know, about being president. And he and he, you know, acquiesced to that and said, yeah, he would he would do it. And of course, he got the nomination, um, and of course, won a big victory in 1920 again because people were so fed up with the, the way the country had been going. And I spend a lot of time with that on the book as well to, to set the scene so people can understand why would the people turn to somebody like Harding? I mean, this was right. not a, a Roosevelt type guy. Why, why would they go to this small town newspaper owner, one term senator? Um, and when you see the shape the country was in, it's it, he was the perfect candidate in the perfect campaign. I think that makes him relevant today. I mean, that's kind of like you you mentioned in the book and you mentioned in the article that this is sort of the same impulse that caused you know Donald Trump just um, you know mass frustration with the political class, and he was elected out of that. So, talk a little bit about what was happening um, in the age of Wilson that caused people to um, to flock to him. He, I, I love his phrase, "the return to normalcy." What was abnormal about the pre-Harding years? Yeah, and what, what he meant was it's time to turn to return to America as we always knew it. I mean, things were in a in a state of upheaval. And I get emails and, and little notes from people all the time who have read the book and, and have told me, I didn't realize the country was in such bad shape in coming out of World War One. I. I mean, of course, you had all the progressive reforms, you had World War One, and of course that ended a lot earlier and quicker than people we thought we'd fight that war on into 1919 and 1924 it'd be over but of course it sort of ended abruptly the end of 1918 but then things started there was a state of upheaval in the country i mean you had to you had to fight over the league of nations that wilson was trying to shove down the country's throats and they clearly didn't want it 
Uh, Republicans had taken back control of the Senate and the, and the House, and they were fighting it, and that was going to be turned down. Wilson had a stroke during the middle of all of that 1919s, and he was basically um, out of pocket for, you know, seven, eight, nine months. His wife was really running the White House, tried to keep that secret from the from the country. You get terroristic bombings. You get anarchist groups that were coming in. And remember, the Bolshevik Revolution had happened in Russia in 1917, and this looked like and a lot of people were saying this is a, the Bolsheviks are coming here to do the same thing. And there, I mean, there were bombings. They bombed the attorney general's house and sent mail bombs to prominent uh, citizens across the country. You had labor strikes um, in, in the country. I mean, involving thousands of, and thousands of workers, uh, which people put in their mind is, again, look at Marx and what communism came from the mm-hmm. world, you know, workers of the world unite and that kind of thing. They, they put it all together. Racial violence in 1919 was awful. It called it the red summer racial violence. And then in 1920, you get a really bad depression that hits. The, the economy goes downhill very quickly. Uh, unemployment goes up into double digits. You get inflation, all kinds of things that happen in a depression. So the country was in really bad shape. So when you run in a campaign, we got to return to normalcy. Most people were ready to hear that and agreed with that. That's why you got 60% of the popular vote in 1920, the first president to top 60%. Mm-hmm. Wilson emphasized, you know, sort of an internationalist foreign policy and the League of Nations and all those things. Um, Harding kind of came out of a spirit um, that was really similar to the America First movements that happened in the 40s and also in the 90s. So so talk about a little bit how he kind of um, precluded some of those movements. Well, of course, he as a senator uh, in 1917, he voted for World War One, as, as most senators and most members of Congress did because of Germany's policies. And I think a lot of them felt duped about that later on. I mean, you know, it's, it's like a lot of wars we get into and you find out later um, <clears throat> how much, how many lies are being told. And, that kind of, and there were ways to have prevented that if we had, had acted a little bit differently. And Harding's position was we can't ever do this again. Never, never again are we going to do this. So his foreign policy was very non-interventionist, uh, emphasis on America first. When he was in the Senate, he was instrumental in helping Henry Cabot Lodge stop the League of Nations. They were dead set on stopping that, and it was stopped twice mm-hmm. um, in 1919, and then in March of 1920, they voted it down twice. <clears throat> um, the people clearly did not want that at all. Um, and the thing about it is, Wilson was so obstinate and stubborn, he wouldn't make any changes. That the, the League, of, We probably would have joined the League of Nations if he would have made some changes to it. The, the problem hmm. was the way the league charter was set up, if a member nations attacked, um, we were bound to go to war. So members of Congress said, wait a minute, uh, that's our responsibility. We decide when we go to war, we declare war, not the League of Nations. And they wanted that change. Wilson would not do it. Um, so it was voted down twice. And of course, today, I always think about today. I think, what would they think about today? We're in NATO and all these other treaties Right. That we have with nations that we're honor bound to go to war. If if you know if if, if Russia uh, pushes into NATO territory, I mean we're we're treaty bound to go to war against the Russians. So mm-hmm. we've kind of World War II changed all that. But in those days, uh, there was a heavy emphasis on America first. And and Harding's position was we're not getting back in in in, in Europe's entanglements. We're not getting back in their problems. We did that once. We're not doing it again. And most of the American people agreed with that. Right. Yeah. So I mean, in that way, he he really was that same impulse, you know, that has come up time and again over the over the decades since Harding. Um, Harding is sort of the embodiment of like presidential corruption. And, you know, you you painted this picture of this cigar filled room where they're, uh, you know, scheming to t- take over the take over power 
in which is which is hilarious because you know there's there's not very many um people that have schemed for power like the progressives did you know it's it's just so funny to see these accusations in someone like harding um why do you think they emphasize these um things and they kind of they kind of portray him really as this um sort of almost this like representative for like a gang you know they they have this they have harding as someone who um is not really interested in in being a legitimate president but really just wants to represent um these nefarious groups working behind the scenes yeah, you know, progressives are uh, progressives. You can you can trace them back to the old uh, Puritans in, in Massachusetts Bay back in the 17th century. And of course, a, a progressive, a liberal, whatever you want to call it, they're really good at pointing everybody else's sins out, not their own. Uh, <laughs> you know, they're like Pharisees or something. You know, they're they're goody goody. And of course, that's what they do. And they and they portray him as a corrupt president. And of course, the whole idea behind the and one thing I point out in the book is that this isn't before the age of primaries picking a nominee. I mean, there were some primaries I talked about were a handful, but they had almost no impact on the on the nomination. That was still done at the convention. It's not like today. Uh, conventions are nothing but a very expensive, uh, you know, horse show. That's all it is. You know, a dog and pony show. That's what it is. In those days, conventions were about selecting the nominee and there were fights and things over that. Every nominee was picked the same way Harding was. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea was let's find somebody that the that the convention can agree on, so we don't have a deadlock convention that goes on for days and days and days and dist- and tears the party apart. Mm-hmm. All of them were done there. There were deals that were made all the time. Uh, but of course, the reason was I said, well, Harding's dumb and he's pliable and he'll do what these senators want him to do. And I point out several instances in the book where that's not the case at all. Harding was very independent. He didn't listen to any of those guys. He did what he wanted to do uh, as he was president. And I have some very good examples of that. And, of course, then they extended into the scandals that happened in his presidency, and, of course, the most famous being Teapot Dome. And, of course, uh, as Lou Rockwell pointed out, that was a very rinky-dink scandal compared to what's going on in the last hundred years, and particularly in the modern era. Mm-hmm. Um, there wasn't much to it. And, of course, uh, they, they, they and you mentioned the gang. Uh, they say that, you know, he had this, uh, quote-unquote, Ohio gang that he brought to that he brought to, to Washington and they just looted the treasury and stole all this and were very corrupt. But as I point out, there were there the people that were involved in the corruption, uh, they were not all from Ohio. Only one of them was from Ohio. One person, one cabinet member and his assistant. The rest of them were not. I mean, there's there's no such thing as an Ohio gang that he brought to 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 Washington. That's just a lot of these are political smears. The, sure. The, the, they're just they're just stuff that, that they use to smear him. There's no basis in fact. Um, but of course, now it's become common knowledge to the point when historians and writers write about it, they don't even cite their sources anymore. They just put it down as if, well, Harding was a, had an affair and he had he did this and that. Um, but it's just it's just it's, it's they do the same thing to Grover Cleveland. It's just political attacks that, that were you just like they do today. They smear people with these attacks. There's no basis in fact for any of it. And then it becomes common knowledge and historical fact, and it's not. So, if a lot of his corruption is um, vastly overstated and um, politically motivated, um, what are some of the positive things that he did that that historians overlook? Well, one thing that people probably know a lot about or, or, or know the most about is what he did with the economy. The economy was in terrible shape when he came in in 1921, and he had a very good team uh, in his cabinet. He had. Uh, uh, because one of the things he did was brought the vice president more into the government. Vice president was a bad, bad job. Nobody wanted it. They presided over the Senate and did little else. He actually brought Coolidge into the cabinet meetings and, and 
and, and had meetings with Coolidge to discuss policy. So he actually began the process of transforming the vice presidency into its more modern role. Of course, he had Andrew Mellon at Treasury, brought Hoover in at, at, at Commerce. Um, so he had some brains in his cabinet, what uh, Charles Evans used as Secretary of State. And so he put together a very good economic plan that turned the economy around within six months, which emphasized conservatism, fiscal conservatism, uh, uh, cutting taxes. The tax rate, the income tax came in in 1913, and it was only the, the highest rate in 1913 was 7%. I mean, you had to be a Rockefeller to pay 7%. I mean, what would we, we would love to pay 7% now at the top rate. World War One kicked it up to over 70 percent at the top rate. Um, so they had to get in there and cut these taxes down. Spending was less than 800 million dollars before the war in 1916. In 1919, it was nearly 20 billion dollars. The budget that had to be cut. Um, and so they had significant spending cuts, significant tax cuts, the uh, deregulation. And of course, the economy uh, took off. I mean, business was very happy when, when Harding was elected. Because business had basically been suppressed for eight years. It's very identical. It's almost the same. Uh, it's almost identical to the Obama years. Look at how uh, oppressed business was during those eight years. And the economy just didn't grow. But Trump comes in and the bus business people say, hey, we got a pro-business guy and the, and the economy does much better. Same thing happened under Harding. And so you get this massive expansion of the economy during the 1920s, which we averaged 7% growth. We had a budget surplus every year. Uh, they cut taxes significantly, and we paid down a third of the debt in an eight-year period. Now, that's that's a phenomenal record anybody would like to see today, but we haven't seen anything like like it since. Mm -hmm. Now, as far as other things, before we could talk about foreign policy, our foreign policy was in a mess. Coming let's talk, yeah, let's talk about foreign policy. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> well, so he he you said he had a, a non-interventionist instinct um, to him. Uh, that was a hugely popular position, um, but what did that mean in real terms? What you know? What what? How did he try to pivot from the World War One years? And there's a great scene I write in the book where uh, they sent some uh, thousands of the remains of our servicemen from France, and they, they shipped them from France back home to be buried. And Harding went. Uh, to New Jersey, to the docks where those caskets, it was over 4,000 of them were being offloaded. And he really had tears in his eyes. And he said, never again, never again. We can never do this again. And he wanted to make sure that we had a foreign policy where we wouldn't get entangled um, in Europe squabbles. No, no more internationalism. And as far as World War One, I, I mean, he, he, we, World War One had never officially been concluded officially. He, he got the agreement to officially end that and, with, and withdraw us from that. We had still had troops in the Rhineland in Germany. He withdrew those and brought them home. Um, debt was national, not our debt, but nations owed us a lot of money and, and, and run up debt. So he he called an uh, a, a international a World War Debt Commission to, to hammer out an agreement on, on, on foreign debt because we were owed a lot of money uh, mm -hmm. for what we had done helping Europe. But one of the big things I talk about, and this is what people don't really realize, is what he did in the Caribbean, in Mexico, and Latin America. Woodrow Wilson had ruined uh, our relations with Mexico and a lot of places in Latin. I mean, we occupied Cuba during the war. We always had a lot of interventions going back to Roosevelt and Roosevelt corollary to the Monroe Doctrine where we were intervening in Latin America. And Harding was a very kind man. He was not like Wilson. He was not an arrogant academic guy. His idea of foreign policy was let me sit down with these people or at least communicate with these people and rebuild our relationship. He did that with Mexico. We had severed diplomatic relationship with Mexico. They had severed it with us because of our interventions down there. 
And the president of Mexico was had called Wilson an enemy of the Mexican people, an enemy of Mexico. Harding comes in and he says, this is a day of deliverance. And Harding was able to restore our relationships. He began to withdraw troops from uh, Latin America and, and the Caribbean and, and, and began the process of doing that and restoring those relationships. And of course, the big thing he did was the Washington Disarmament Conference, sometimes called the Washington Naval uh, Conference. This is the first um, arms limitation conference we had ever been involved in. Harding called it because the naval weapons were the big weapons and the feared weapons of the day. This is before air forces were real prominent. They just they just began air forces and atomic weapons. So uh, it's naval weapons. And that was partly responsible for World War One, the arms race between Britain and Germany. And his idea and others were if we can if we can put limits on naval weapons, maybe we can um, get out of this warfare mindset. And so there were, we, we limited our Navy, Japan did, Britain did, everybody had limitations on their Navy, but there were also some agreements that came out of that conference that one hit, uh, when a scholar of foreign policy said probably prevented war in the Pacific for a decade. So he uh, hammered, that was with Japan and some of the antagonism. So he did a lot to, straighten out our foreign policy again he only he died in 1923 so he died in the middle of his term but he did a tremendous amount of work in foreign policy that he gets zero credit for uh, by historians yeah i was going to say you, you, just reading just standard history on the internet or whatever you never really hear about those no. you know the, the bonds that he you know cre recreated and healed uh, on an international level uh, and that's good to hear because he had less of an ideological commitment than wilson did you know there was a lot of um uh, pressure within the American state to to export um, so-called American ideals like democracy. Harding wasn't interested in that at all. No, and that's what I mean when I say, you know, again, the standard history is the progressive era, the progressive movement ended in 1917 when we got into World War One. Totally untrue. Progressivism, I mean, World War One was a progressive war, as you said, we're, mm -hmm. make the world safe for democracy. I mean, that is progressivism. Now, that's not Jeffersonianism at, at all. And this is going to be the war to end all wars. Well, I think we, we missed the mark on that one. Um, mm -hmm. And, of course, there were other progressive things that we were doing, like, you know, prohibition and things like that during the war. So, yeah, Harding didn't have that, uh, that, that mindset at all to export American values abroad or anything. I mean, he didn't he didn't look progressives look at things like, well, the government needs to do something about A, B or C. Harding even said publicly, he said, the world needs to be reminded that that social ills can't be solved by legislation. I mean, we can't pass a law and fix everything. It's just mm -hmm. not going to happen. The government's incapable of doing that. So that was he did not have that because the progressive mindset was if we just have the right people in government, government will work and mm -hmm. it will work for good for the for the average person. But he didn't think that at all. He thought uh, the government was a hindrance uh, to those things. And as we've seen the last hundred years, I mean, he's been proven to be right. Mm hmm. Donald Trump has a very difficult relationship, not only, of course, with the Democratic establishment, but with the Republican establishment, too. Um, did Harding come into conflict a conflict with the Republican establishment or were things a little bit, uh, you know, the dynamics between the parties were a little bit different? Did he have party support at all? Yeah, I mean, they came to him to uh, they thought he could win the nomination. But and I think they I think they honestly thought Harding would be pliable. I think they thought. This is a guy we can kind of push around. And I think they realized uh, pretty soon that that was not the case. One of the things he did, I talk about in the book, one of my favorite stories, he wanted to bring Herbert Hoover, in, Herbert Hoover into the cabinet. Mm -hmm. Herbert Hoover was not a conservative at all. People, you know, we 
historians will say that the, the Republican era of the 1920s, Harding, Coolidge, Hoover. Hoover was not like Harding and Coolidge. He was a progressive. And Harding knew that. And Harding wouldn't put him in a prominent position. He wanted him in the cabinet because Hoover was a very good administrator. You, you look at what he did in World War One with the uh, preventing famine there and some of the things. He was very talented in a lot of things. And he wanted his um, mind in the cabinet. He said, you know, I want him to either be Commerce Secretary of Interior Secretary. A lot of people didn't like that. A lot of people in the party didn't like that. A lot of senators didn't like that. Andrew Mellon, the Secretary of the Treasury, did not like that. He said, you know, he's too progressive. We don't need him in here. Harding wouldn't have it. He said, I'm not listening to that. The Senate even tried to threaten him a little bit to say, we're not going to approve Hoover for a cabinet position. <laughs> and, of course, the conservatives in the Senate loved Andrew Mellon. They were happy to the Andrew Mellon pick. He said, this is a great pick. And Harding told him flat out, he wrote down a little note. He was tired of their uh, dragging their feet, not approving Hoover. And he wrote out a little note and sent it to the Senate. And he said, Hoover and Mellon are no Mellon. And what he meant was, I will pull the nomination of Mellon if you don't give me Hoover. You know what they did? They immediately approved Hoover and said, okay. That's not a guy who's pliable. That's not a guy who's going to be pushed around. That's a guy who said, I'm going to pick my cabinet and I'm going to do the things I want to do. And, and the Congress needs to do your function, you know, your your responsibilities. I'll take care of the responsibilities down here. So I think they found out really quickly this guy uh, is a lot tougher uh, than we gave him credit for. Mm -hmm. Why did he pick uh, Coolidge? Was that a party pick or was that, you know, it was actually did... a party pick? Okay. He actually, Harding didn't pick an, an, uh, a running mate. He basically said, whoever the convention wants is fine with me. Of course, again, in those days, vice presidents didn't do very much. Sure. Of course, he wanted to bring them in. And, and they had uh, selected a, a very liberal progressive senator from Wisconsin. And the idea was, hey, let's, let's balance the ticket. we got a very conservative guy here. Let's put a little bit of a progressive here, and, and, and we can bring in some of those people. Mm -hmm. And they tried to nominate this particular senator, Senator Linroot, at the convention. And Coolidge had become very popular because of the Boston police strike in 1919. He'd stood up to that um, and he'd become a national hero. And the convention just started shouting Coolidge, 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 Coolidge to the point it just stampeded Coolidge the nomination. So these delegates were not having any of this progressive and they were done with that and no ticket balancing. And so when you look at Harding and Coolidge as far as policy and what they believed, they were identical. Now they mm -hmm. were not in personality, but and what they believe, that's why things did not change at all when Harding died and Coolidge became president. He just carried on the same program uh, and, and continued everything just, just exactly like Harding was doing, which I think is the way it should be done. This ticket balancing is ridiculous and, and foolish. They didn't need it. You didn't need any progressives. I mean, Harding ended up getting 60% of the vote. Right. He didn't need it at all. Um, so, and so he was very happy with Coolidge. Soon after the, the election, he invited Coolidge to his home in Marion. Uh, during the Christmas holidays, and, and they said, let's sit down and decide. So he brought Coolidge in and said, help me pick a cabinet. What are we going to, what, what do we need to do first? And so he really brought Coolidge into things. He was not ignored at all. He was a bit, Harding said he was a big help. Coolidge liked Harding. They got along very, very well. Uh, I, I don't think Coolidge liked some of Harding's, uh, you know, Harding had a, you know, he had a drink every now and then and, and <laughs> had a reputation of being a party. You know, right. Coolidge was caught dead with a drink in his hand or, 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 or messing around at all. Um, but they got along very, very well in, in, in how they approached the uh, government and how they wanted to clean up the, the mess that Wilson yeah. had left. Yeah, that's interesting because they have such a different – they have a, such a personality clash. And uh, where's, where's Coolidge from? He's, he was originally from Vermont. Okay. Um, he had, he had uh, moved to Massachusetts, and he had been governor of Massachusetts uh, when he was chosen as Harding's running mate. Mm -hmm. he was from Massachusetts. 
Jefferson's politicians. So he was a Northeastern guy, but very, very uh, conservative Jeffersonian in his outlook. Mm-hmm. And and Coolidge really um, during his I mean his administration was um, an accident, right? So they, they didn't he wasn't expecting that to happen. Uh, but he basically ran things with a really similar um, per, you know demeanor and and program um, as Harding did. He got along with Mellon better than Harding did. Mellon actually liked Coolidge better <clears throat> than Harding. Probably personality things, um, but again, everything stayed the same. They continued to cut taxes, cut spending. Um, and restrained. I mean, Coolidge was extremely tight-fisted. He didn't want to spend money on anything. I mean, one time the, there was a leak in the White House roof, and he wouldn't even, you know, appropriate any money mm. to fix the leak in the roof. I mean, that's how tight-fisted he was. So, uh, yeah, the, the, the program stayed exactly the same form. Nothing changed when Coolidge became president, and of course, he won a term in his own right in 1924 uh, pretty significantly. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and a lot of people credit Coolidge with the boom of the twenties. Sometimes you see it in books, Coolidge prosperity or the Coolidge boom or something like that. My point was I wanted to give Harding credit for starting it because Mm. the the program started under Harding and Coolidge was a part of it. I'm not, I'm not saying he wasn't, but Coolidge is kind of like a, a, you know, in track and field. I mean, um, Harding handed the baton off to to Coolidge and Coolidge carried it on forward. So the right. Prosperity of the 1920s really, you really have to credit both of them. But I just wanted to make sure Harding was not left out because he's the one that got it started and got the depression stopped and with, within a matter of months and the economy booming. I mean, <laughs> think about 7% growth a year. We, we, we get happy. We get 3% now, mm-hmm. 7% throughout the 1920s. I mean, uh, significant tax reduction. I mean, pay down a third of the debt. That'd be like us paying down ten trillion dollars today in a decade. That's that's pretty phenomenal growth. Yeah, there's a book by James Grant, the market analyst, called The Forgotten Depression, and I'm sure you've heard of it, or at least um, I don't I know if you've read it. I yeah, so, it my book. so he, yeah, so talk about the relevance of that book. I mean, he basically credits Harding for doing the opposite of what the 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 court economists would have suggested he do. And they, and, and I even quote Tom Woods in there. Tom Woods. Uh, you know, you got all these economists that say we've got to do this, that, and the other. And, and Harding proved to be a better economist than all the professional economists at the time, taking that commonsensical approach uh, today. So, yeah, I use the Grant book a lot. I'm not an economist. Right. And if you get too deep into numbers, look, <laughs> I had a I had a violent collision with math in the first grade, and we never got along very well. So I rely on a lot of people for economics. But the Grant book. Uh, calling it the forgotten depression in 1900 because most people don't know it. And I, I right. get people tell me that all the time. I didn't know there was one. Well, there was in 1920, but it got stopped pretty quickly by, by Harding and Mellon and Coolidge. And so it didn't drag on. Now Roosevelt took the opposite well, Hoover first. And then Roosevelt took the opposite approach, 1929, 1933. Mm-hmm. And look what happened. It drug on for an entire decade mm-hmm. with the opposite approach. So that's the lesson we should learn in, a, in, a, in attacking or how we should respond to economic downturns right how quickly after harding died um did the the intellectuals turn against him was it was it there the whole time or did it take a while well uh, the problem was soon after he died the scandal started emerging so much so that coolidge actually started distancing himself from harding for political reasons and harding uh, of course his wife he died in 1923 his wife died the next year they were buried in Marion, Ohio, and they, they created a memorial up there in Marion to bury him, and which is very nice if you go up to Marion sometime and, and see it. Uh, 
Coolidge as president wouldn't go and and dedicate the memorial because of the scandals that were rolling. Of course, he's dead, so everybody let's blame it on Harding. Let's blame it on the dead guy. It's nobody else's fault. Mm-hmm. That was dedicated actually by Hoover in 1931, and I actually give Hoover a lot of credit for that in the book because he went up there and gave a very good speech about Harding. So you can really credit Hoover with being the first to begin to try to rehabilitate Harding because it had already started um, the, the, the trashing of Harding's reputation. Right. So you look at how corrupt this guy was, but it was really not true. Yeah. You can disagree with me on this. You know, you're, you're more of a historian than I am, but it seems like Hoover sort of had a change of mindset um, after his presidency and after the, um, you know, after the great depression and the world war two in which he began to have, take a more conservative take on things. Um, I don't know if you agree with that at all. Yeah, I hadn't done a lot of, uh, there's some really good books. I hadn't done a lot of reading on that, but uh, Hoover, I think did, uh, I think probably learned a lot of lessons about things and um, his, his post-president, because he lived a long time. He lived well into the 1960s. Hoover, Hoover lived a long time after that. So yeah, I think there was a lot of change in his mindset. Um, I just think if he would attack things in 1929, the way Harding and Coolidge did, mm-hmm. Um, instead of doing, because a lot of what he did, some people even call it Hoover's New Deal, and and mm-hmm. some of FDR's uh, assistants and aides said, yeah, a lot of our ideas we got from Hoover <laughs> for the New Deal. Well, yeah, economically that's true. Uh, it just seems like Hoover learned a lot of lessons about the the dangers and damages that can come out of uh, you know a hyper interventionist foreign policy. Yeah, no question about that. I mean, look at his views on World War II and stuff. I think people had learned um, their lesson. On mm-hmm. that, and I agree 100 percent with that. Again, my beef with him is is, is his economic. Because right. Hoover was an engineer by trade, and that's one of the things when they when he put him in the cabinet. Mellon's response to that was he's too much of an engineer. And what he means is he's going to engineers want to get their hands on stuff and you know start turning dials. We got to do something because engineers control chaos. That's what engineering is. Right. So 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 um, and engineers don't have a hands off. Let's not touch anything approach. And so that was the issue. And I think, yeah, probably in foreign policy. Yeah, you're probably exactly right uh, on that. So so right after his death, the, the corruption starts to come out, um, the politically motivated accusations start to come out. Um, but was Harding still um, at, a, at a popular level? Was he still someone that people liked? And would he have run again? So I think definitely. Um, some of the things that had he'd been having trouble in his administration, they had he had the midterm elections in 1922 and they had lost some seats. They didn't lose control of Congress. They had lost some seats in 1923. He said, I want to go out and, and meet some more people because he was a people person. He wasn't a stuffy academic. He wanted to go out. So he did a in the summer of 1923, what he called a voyage of understanding. He was going to go out west. He eventually went to Alaska. He was the first president to visit Alaska and came back down the uh, west coast. Hoover was with him. Mm-hmm. Um, during the trip and a lot of other people. And um, he was planning, oh yeah, he definitely planning to warn again in 1924. And of course he died in San Francisco on that, on that, on that trip. And so a lot of that kind of, particularly Teapot Dome began to come out after that. He actually spoke to Hoover about Teapot Dome on the train during that trip and what he should do about it. The thing I credit Harding for was when these scandals happened, it was only three of them. Um, uh, with, with one in the, the Veterans Bureau, the Justice Department, and Teapot Dome, Harding jumped in and did something about it. He wasn't like Grant. Grant had a bunch of, of scandals in his administration, a lot more scandals, and he didn't do anything about any of them. Mm-hmm. Let people resign without penalties. Uh, people went to jail. 
Um, Harding fired people. They got rid of people. People went to prison. There were two people in the administration that committed suicide rather than mm -hmm. face justice. Um, and he was planning to do something about Teapot Dome, but of course he died. And I've always said that's not fair to criticize him for that when he found out about it. And I, and I think he would have taken care of it just like, you know, the Veterans Department uh, fellow Charles Forbes went to prison. Uh, and eventually Albert Fall, the cabinet office, uh, minister for interior, he was involved in Teapot Dome. He went to prison, too. He was the first American cabinet member to go to prison. Mm -hmm. uh, justice was prevailing. And I think and I, the part Harding was a very trusting guy, probably the, the flaw he had. Mm -hmm. He just couldn't believe that people were doing this to him. You know, I trusted these people. I put them in office and look at what they're doing. He told a reporter one time, he said, it's not my enemies I have to worry about. It's my friends that keep me walking the floors at night. Mm -hmm. And when he died of a heart attack and a stroke, um, even some people, some of his enemies said he probably died of a broken heart. And I think that that's, there's probably some truth to that. I think he was so you know, distraught that people had done this and, and betrayed his trust. Um, but I think he would have, I think, you know, my position is he would have cleaned a lot of it up. And I think his second term would have been uh, a lot cleaner. But again, we don't know. That's just speculation at this point. The 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 veteran affairs thing is there's a funny story out of that, or I thought it was amusing. Um, he was basically shocked that Forbes, the guy that was heading it up, was basically skimming off the top. Um, but that came as a complete surprise to him. And he physically confronted him and grabbed him by the neck because he was so outraged um, that this had come to light. Yeah, he had met uh, Forbes a few years before. He was a senator and he met him in Hawaii and he really liked the guy. Mm -hmm. And he brought him in to head the veterans, uh, new veterans. This was brand new the Veterans Bureau, because we had a lot of wounded warriors from World War One, And this is a government. And that's one of the reasons why the, the government had to spend a lot of money on that. We've taken care of, uh, of so many veterans. And he, yeah, he was skimming off the top for the, I mean, think about that. You're, you're constructing hospitals and you're supplying hospitals with medical supplies. And he's, he skimmed about $2 million off right. of it. I mean, you're stealing from wounded uh, veterans. That's pretty low down. And according to a New York Times reporter who was in the White House, uh, who witnessed it, that he had Forbes by the throat and called him <laughs> a two-timing blank. Uh -huh. uh, he was red-faced. I mean, he was uh, he was living. And some people try to dispute that, but this this reporter filed a report and, and sent it into the uh, to the head of the, you know to the New York Times the, the editor. They never printed it, but he he was emphatic that he had witnessed um, that and that Harding had. So that's the point. Harding was confronting this. He was not letting it go and excusing it. Um, the Justice Department, he did something a little bit different with the Justice Department. Harry Doherty being the, the, the attorney general, he had, a, he had a, a partner in crime named Jesse Smith. Harding confronted Jeffrey Smith a little bit different. And he said, um, go home and get your affairs in order. You're going to be arrested for this. Mm -hmm. And Jesse Smith went home, burned all his papers and shot himself. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, so again, and there's and somebody and one of the somebody in the Veterans Bureau also committed suicide. I talk about that in the book. Mm -hmm. um, so th things were things were being taken care of. Um, and I think Teapot Dome would have been uh, the same. So, again, you had those three scandals and but they make it seem like this. All these people from Ohio, this Ohio gang came down and their whole point was to steal everything. Mm -hmm. um, not true. Not true. In the not true in the least. So aside from the policies, what are some of the lessons that people can draw from Harding? Um, you know, not not just in the specific decisions that he made, but in terms of how they should deal with the historians who tell them certain people are bad and certain people are good. Uh, perhaps people should be more skeptical of of what they're being told about the historical. And I try to tell my students in 
in class or if I'm giving speeches or, or on podcasts like this, is that you have to consider who's doing the, the rankings and, and look at who these historians are. That's one of the reasons I wrote the book, because I realized a lot of people didn't know anything. And I, again, I, I get emails all the time. People say, you know, you've changed my view on Harding. I didn't know he had done so much. And that's what I'm, I'm trying to do. That people can take this book and it's not a very long book or read my articles in Chronicles magazine mm-hmm. and you can get some ammunition. And so when they say that, those things, you can confront them with facts. And that's what you need to do is confront them with facts. I used a lot of primary sources, Harding's own words, you know, the words of people that that served with him that had a lot of good things to say about him. Uh, Charles Evans Hughes and people like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and even reporters that didn't like him had to confess this was a very nice man, very generous man, very well liked at home, uh, well liked by the American public. I mean, his funeral train, they said, was the largest uh, since Lincoln mm-hmm. had been assassinated in 1865. Um, so there's so much there that could, this can be undone. And that's that was the whole point I was trying to do with the book is that people can be armed with the right information. That Not everybody thinks that he's the worst president ever. Matter of fact, I wish we could have him now. Mm-hmm. Would, be my, would be my assessment. Let's elect the guy now if we could. Yeah, so there's no perfect president, um, but do you, you you seem to have a pretty favorable opinion of Harding. Where do you think he ranks in the overall presidency? I think he uh, should be off the bottom. I mean, and I even said in the book, look, he's not going to be on Mount Rushmore. I'm not, I'm not saying we need to carve right. him into a mountain somewhere. Mm-hmm. I think he's at least, a, I mean, he may, you may not even consider him a great president, but I think he at least... You have to say he was a good president. I mean, when you just look at the this, you know, just look at the forest. Don't look at the trees. Just pull back and look at the forest. Look at the shape the country was in, and look how he turned it around. And even historians try to deny him that. That's why I concentrated on that at the first part of the book because even historians try to say, well, there wasn't really wasn't anything going on in the country when Harding became president, and he really didn't accomplish anything. That's not true at all. When you see the chaos the country was in and how he was able to reverse that. Um, he did a lot of things on race relations. He gets no credit for a call for a civil rights bill, anti-lynching bill, went to Birmingham, Alabama, gave a speech about segregation, that blacks need to be treated fairly in the country. I mean, who would do something like that? Go to the heart of the old Confederacy and, and give a speech to a segregated audience and say, y'all need to quit doing this. Um, no president did that. No president had ever done that. So he did a lot to heal the wounds, pardon people who had been put in jail uh, by Wilson for giving, you know, anti-war speeches. So he did a lot to heal the divides in the country. Um, and that's that's another lesson that, you know, that, that, that I think is important. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've done Cleveland. You've done Harding. Is there anyone else that you have on on the horizons? You know, I spoke to Tom Woods about this here a while back, and I said, you know, I, I don't know. I've, I've looked at uh, maybe trying to rehabilitate Andrew Johnson. I don't know. If I, I said, that's probably going to be a retirement uh, project. <laughs> that's not going to go over very well. Um, some of the books, I'm writing a biography right now of a, of a fallen astronaut. Um, I'm working with the family on that. And um, I'm, I'm working on a big book on Vietnam War and um and 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 probably another a, a book on, on Lyndon Johnson because I don't really like Lyndon Johnson. So mm. instead of rehabilitating, I may, I may take a rip at some because that's that's the that's the other thing. I mean, a lot of good conservative Jeffersonian presidents are put down in the bottom, and then of course who they elevate, right? Wilson and, and I mean the last ranking I saw, Lyndon Johnson was ranked eleventh. <laughs> really eleventh, Lyndon Johnson. That's just yeah. crazy. I think some. I would love to do a a, a history of, of Wilson's uh, two terms. I think that needs to be reopened and reexamined, uh, and some of the things that happened. So, uh, I'll probably do some attacking here sometime in the future. Uh, uh, 
when I get through some of these other projects on my desk. Good. Well, the book is um, The Jazzy's Prison. I have it right here. It's a really simple read. I It was a just enjoyable, light reading. Um, I highly recommend you get it. And if you subscribe to the Chronicles magazine, you can read the Remembering the Right uh, Warren Harding piece written by Ryan Walter. So thank you for joining us today, and we'll do it again. Thank you so much for having me.